Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. If you want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 13. We're finishing up Luke chapter 13 this morning. It's good to see everybody today. It's good to be here. And we are in week, in our series on Luke, we're in week number 50. Week number 50. So we're over halfway through. And we're looking today at, at verses 31 through 35. It's neat having the kids up here praying for the different countries, isn't it? It's such a blessing. We worked through it last night and just talking through it and praying through it, getting our hearts ready. I just really encourage you, if, if, if you would like to take a different country on a Sunday morning, please either email the office or call the office. It's a great way. You don't have to have kids to do it. it can, you know, anyone can do it. And it's just a neat way. We want to, we want to pray for the, all the countries of the world. And it's going to take a couple of years, but we're going to pray for each country individually as, as time goes on. And it's, it's a neat way because we believe that the good news of Jesus Christ and that the power of God's Word isn't just contained here in Northwest Indiana or just in this church. We believe this is for all people. We believe this is good news for the whole world. And so we want to be praying. We can't all go to different, all these different countries, but we sure can pray for the believers and for the people of these countries to come to know Jesus Christ. And so that's what we want to do on our Sunday mornings. All right, Luke chapter 13, verses uh, 31 through 35. We're going to read this through, then we're going to pray. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day. And the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, God, that you continue to speak to us through your word. And God, thank you that it is profitable for us to look at your word and and begin to ask the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and discernment and faith and hearts that are ready to receive. So, Lord, today, give us hearts that are soft and ready for your word. Give us eyes to see the glory in these pages and help us to love Jesus Christ evermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, when I come to a passage like this, these are some of the passages as you read through the word of God that you kind of, you glance through and then you say, uh, what do I do with that? Like, what do I do with this passage that I just read? How do I understand this passage? 
These are some of the harder passages because it doesn't necessarily have a go and do this or believe this way or think this way. It's kind of more of a descriptive passage that kind of at the end of it, you leave thinking, okay, that was nice, but let's get on to 14 and see what we have. So this morning, I just want to spend just a couple of minutes just kind of sharing with you how I go about thinking through passages like this, okay? And hopefully this will be helpful for you as you begin to dialogue with passages like this. So right from the very beginning, the first thing that I want to do as I approach a passage like this is pray. It always starts with prayer. It starts and ends with prayer and prayer all the way through because we believe that the Word of God isn't something that we just understand on our own, but the Word of God is something that the Holy Spirit takes and brings to life inside of us and helps us to understand it. So we have to approach God's Word with an understanding that the Holy Spirit is the, is, is the person that helps us to understand it. And so as we approach God's Word, we begin to pray, and then we begin to ask questions like, okay, here we see in the beginning it's talking about the Pharisees. So who are the Pharisees? Who are the Pharisees? Can I get some help here? Who are the Pharisees that we know about so far that we've been reading about? Who are, what are the Pharisees like? Matt, what are the Pharisees like in this that we know so far in the, in the book, in the Gospel of Luke. What would you say? They're into their own kingdom. They're into their own ways. That's right. So the Pharisees here, we know from the very outset that they are into their own ways. They've got their own standards, their own rules, their own regulations. And are they, do they get along very well with Jesus? No, not, very, not so much so. They... They clash with Jesus over and over and over again. And so they're not getting along with Jesus. They've got their own way. They clash with Jesus. So right from the very beginning, we begin to ask questions like that. So then we ask questions like, who's Herod? What do we know about Herod? Can anyone help me with this one? What do we know about Herod? Who's Herod? Yeah, so he's the Roman leader put in charge over Israel, right? And... Did Herod get along with people like John the Baptist? What do we know about John the Baptist and Herod? Think back now. This is out of Matthew. What happened? Cut his head off, right? So Herod had John the Baptist beheaded, killed him. So we know from the beginning, the Pharisees, we've got Herod over here, and then we have Jesus. And the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, and what are they saying? Hey, you need to get out of here. Are they really concerned for Jesus? I mean, are they like, oh, we're so concerned for Jesus. We just, we want things to go well for him, right? They've been clashing all along, and so we see them coming to Jesus and, and telling him some things. Probably some hidden motives, right? So we begin to, to ask those kinds of questions. Who's Herod? Who's the Pharisees? Why would they be coming to Jesus and warning him? Now, we also see in verse 34 this Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And what do we know about Jerusalem so far? Where is Jesus headed to? Right? Jesus set his face to go where? Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is mentioned more in the Gospel of Luke. It's mentioned almost, I think, 90 times in the Gospel of Luke. And Jerusalem is then mentioned, I think, in in the other Gospels, maybe in the whole New Testament, like some 45 times. So it is mentioned a lot in the Gospel of Luke. This is really important, this Jerusalem theme that's going on here. And what does Jesus say about Jerusalem in this passage? What happens in, what happens in Jerusalem? 
Yeah, Jerusalem. So is this this place of like, oh, great peace waiting ahead for me. Jerusalem's a great, I can't wait to get there. Jerusalem's, you know. No, what does Jerusalem do? They, They kill the prophets. And so you can see how we begin to ask these kinds of questions. So Jerusalem, it's this place that it kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then we see this, this discrepancy between two wills, right? Jesus said, I, will, I would like to do what in this passage? And he says, but Jerusalem would want to do something else. So there's this opposition already taking place, right? So Jesus is saying, he's saying what? I would gather you under my wings. But what would you want to do? But you don't want to do that, right? So there's this, there's this disagreement between what Jesus Christ would desire to do for Jerusalem, but there's this response of saying, no way, I'm not going to do that. So we begin to see what? What's God's heart look like for people? What's God's heart? What is this passage revealing to us about the Lord's desire for people? What is this showing us about God, right? So those are some of the questions that as I approach a text like this, I want to begin to ask. Questions like, what's happening in this passage? Who are, who are the players in this passage? What happens in Jerusalem? What happens with, with the people that Jesus is dialoguing with? What's going on here? Those are the things that I begin to ask, and then asking questions like, what does this passage have to reveal about God? about his intentions, about his desires, about his character. These are all the questions I want to begin asking. And you can also then go on and say, what does this reveal about me? What does this reveal about our response to God? And so you can see as you begin to dialogue with a passage that may be really hard to kind of understand from the beginning, it's something that you can begin to really dialogue with God about and begin to ask questions and really begin to unpack what it is that God would have for us. So this passage begins to come alive. That wasn't the sermon, okay? In case you're wondering, that wasn't the shortest sermon I've ever preached. That was just some of the things I just wanted to share with you, some of the things that I was thinking about as I prepared this. All right, let's get into it now. I just shared with you my whole sermon, so that was basically my sermon in a nutshell, all right? So it's going to be, you guys know where I'm going with this. So the Pharisees here we see are trying to scare Jesus, right? They don't get along with Jesus. The Pharisees here are not the ones who are concerned and really, you know, worried that Jesus is going to make it out all right. They've been clashing with Jesus ever since the very beginning. Ever since Jesus healed that guy that was lowered through the roof, and the Pharisees begin to ask, who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy claim he can forgive sins? And here they come to Jesus and say, hey, get away from here, right? You want to beat it, leave you, we're, we're, we're really concerned for you, but not really. We just want you to get out of here. We want you to be away from us. We don't want you to have any more influence over people. We don't want you to, to be speaking to the people that we are kind of like overseeing and looking out after. We want to hold the power ourselves. And they threaten Jesus with this. Herod's out to kill you. And as we just said, we remember back, Herod is the one who had Jesus' relative, John the Baptist, beheaded. So it might be a pretty, pretty reasonable kind of threat that they are making to, to Jesus. They're not just kind of throwing this one out there. This is probably somewhat believable. 
And so Jesus turns to them and says, look, go and tell that fox. Now, fox was something in Jewish thought that was a person was a fox was someone who was insignificant and worthless. They weren't a lion. They didn't have real power. They didn't have real control. They were a fox. They were ineffective. They were posers. They were people who really had a louder bark than their bite. Wasn't a whole lot to them. So Jesus said, look, that's not, I'm not frightened by that. I'm not, that's, not, that's not scaring me. That's not controlling my, my future, what I'm going to do. And Jesus is basically turning to the Pharisees after they say, hey, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus turns and says, that means nothing to me. That really means nothing to me. What you just told me means absolutely nothing to me. It won't affect the way that I live my life. It's not going to affect where I go, how I travel. It has no effect on me. Now, if someone came to me and told me, let's say, the governor of the state who happened to be a real thug was after me and he had just imprisoned my cousin and, and had murdered them, whether this threat was real or imagined, I would probably have been pretty freaked out. I probably would have, you know, okay, I'm not afraid, but as soon as they turn their back, I'm, I'm getting out of here. This is not a good thing. Even if it is false, I don't want to stick around to find out if it's true. But what does Jesus say here? What is Jesus saying after he hears this news? He says, look, I've got work to do. I have got work to accomplish. There has been a, a task assigned to me that I will accomplish. That no person, no thing is going to hinder me and stop me from the task that God has entrusted me to. See, Jesus is on mission. As we read about, he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. The very place that we know he's going to meet his end. The very place where he's going to go to accomplish redemption. The very place where he knows he is going to be beaten and rejected and put upon a cross He knows this. He knows what's waiting for him, this final confrontation with the government rulers, with with the religious leaders. He knows that there is death waiting for him on the cross. But there is nothing that's going to keep him from his glorious finish. And what I love about this is that Jesus' confidence was not in his ability to avoid Herod, wasn't in his ability to outsmart the Pharisees. His confidence was in God's power and in God's sovereignty. Because in the end, God is the one who's in control. It's not the Pharisees or Herod who would direct Jesus' destiny. It is God alone. Jesus knew that his time was in God's hands and no one else's. Do we know that our time is in God's hands? Is that something that continues to permeate our thinking? Last week we had a really neat time of praying together in the midst of worship. We had a neat time praying for people who are sick. And this is what I know about sickness. That whether it's the flu or something more serious, we can feel like the sickness is the thing that's in control that our sickness is the thing that's dictating what's going on in our lives, how we're going to live, whether we are going to live or not. 
the sickness is in control. And this is what Jesus is saying to us today. It isn't the Pharisees. It's not Herod. It's not your boss. It's not your sickness. It's not the broken family that determines your destiny. It is God alone who determines our destiny. It is God alone. These other things are just posers. They would like for us to believe that they are in control, but it's not the case. Because God is the one who alone is in control at all times. And so for us, this is a battle. It's not a battle for control because God already has control. For us, this is a fight of faith. It is a fight of faith. That in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of the brokenness of our family, in the midst of the hardship at work, that God is truly the one in control. That God is truly the one who holds our destiny in His hands. God is truly the one who knows everything, who is all-powerful, who is loving and kind and gracious. And although all these other things would seek to come upon us and tell us that they are the person or they are the thing that is in control, it's not the case. And Jesus here looks in the face of the Pharisees, in the face of, of Herod, in the face of the the. The temptation to think, well, if Herod's after me, if the government that is in control is after me, then where's my hope? And he looks at the face and says, this means absolutely nothing to me because I know who holds my destiny. And it's God Almighty. This for us is a fight of faith. And this fight of faith is a fight that we go to battle and to war with every single day. In big things and in little things. Whether it's an illness or that person I'm battling against is the thoughts inside of me. This fight of faith is as simple as when I get into an argument with my, my wife and there's a disagreement and everything inside of me wants to retaliate and to say unkind things and to be angry and to hold a grudge. The fight of faith says, but Christ is more valuable. But Jesus is more valuable. His ways can be trusted. His ways are right. When everything inside of me wants to say, no, no, I, it's going to go my way. I know how to get my way. I know how to control the situation. Here's what I need to do. I need her to know that I am the one in control, that it's not going to go down this way. So I go to war. But it's not a fight against my wife that I'm fighting. It's a fight of faith. Because the fight of faith that says Christ is more valuable. Christ is more glorious. His ways can be trusted. So Jesus, I'm going to throw myself upon you. And I'm going to ask you for the grace to respond with mercy and with patience and with kindness. Because I believe your ways are true and right. And I need you in this moment. It's not time for me to exert myself and get my own way, it is time for me to entrust myself to you. It is the fight of faith. And faith says that it is better to submit to Christ and choose His ways than to go our own way, than to fight our own battles ourselves. Whether that's with our, in our own thinking, or with our spouse, or with our bosses at work, or any of those things. 
It's a fight of faith. Will I trust Jesus or take things up my own way and do things my way? Or think of it like this, even when we talk about sickness. Here he says, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. What about this? Get away from here, for cancer wants to kill you. When we're sick, there's a temptation to believe, well, cancer's the thing that's in control. Cancer's the one calling the shots. It's a fight of faith. Now, the reality of it is that all of us are going to die. That each one of us will pass away. That we may die of cancer. But cancer is not the thing in control, nor is Herod, nor are the Pharisees, or myself. It is God alone who is in control. And my destiny is in His hands. And there's nothing that can happen to me or to you that is out of God's control. There's nothing. And Jesus knows this, He trusts this, and this directs every step of his life. I think the challenge for each one of us is to find this place, this battle of faith that would say no matter what comes my way, whether sickness, whether it's a situation at work or in the home or anywhere else, the battle we fight is one of faith, that we would trust ourselves to God. Now, Jesus moves on from here in verse 34 It begins with a a lament. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets, that stones those who are sent to it. Jesus here is clarifying and reminding us of the mission that is set before him. He is on mission. Jesus here is reminding us, look, I am on my way to Jerusalem. I am on my way to sacrifice my life for the sins of people. But in this, we see God's compassion for people. Who is Jesus desiring to bring near to him? Is it the people who are really good and who are asking for him to come to them? Is that who Jesus says, I desire to bring you near to me? It's the very people who he said, look, you're the ones who have stoned those who I've sent to you and have rejected the prophets and killed them. You're the people that I desire to bring near to me. You're the ones that I desire to bring close to me. It's not the good ones that I'm, I'm desiring to bring near those who are asking for me. I'm actually desiring to bring near to me those people who have rejected me, who have pushed me away, who have murdered the ones that I've sent to them. It is those people who I've come to bring near to me. Think about your own life. Is this, is this our experience as well? That Jesus would come and meet us at a place not where we have pursued God our whole lives and we've, we've sought Him out and we, have, we are seeking after God then God also shows up and gives us Himself. We had, a, we had a, 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 a Sunday morning where we shared testimonies. And I loved hearing the different testimonies but there's this common theme. People not looking for Jesus who somehow find Jesus because Jesus went looking for them. That was the theme. When I hear Jim Melf's testimony of how he was not pursuing God, but God pursued him, I think that's what this is all about. It is about people who are not pursuing God. God says, you are the ones that I desire to bring close to me. You are the ones I desire to bring near to me. 
You're the ones who I'm going to go to the cross for. I give my life as a ransom for, not those who've got life figured out, not those who are perfectly following after me, but those who have rejected me, those who have pushed me away, those who are without a clue what it means to follow me. I want to come and draw near. I want them to come and draw near to me. That's who Jesus is going after. This is the people who Jesus is drawing near to himself. I love this passage. So we want to be, as we sing these songs, we want to be more like Jesus, don't we? We want to be more like Christ. How do, what does that look like? It looks like loving the unlovely. It looks like welcoming those who are rejected. It looks like showing compassion to the least, the last, and the unloved. That's what it means to look more like Jesus Christ. All these things that our lives would reflect this heart and passion of Jesus. That our lives would reflect this kind of love. That those people who would push Jesus away, Jesus says, I want to bring near to you. And, and if we think about our own lives, the people who we, we push away from us are the people who, who push back against us. People who rub us the wrong way. Family members who we don't get along with. Those are the ones we kind of push away from us. But Jesus says, no, those are the very ones that I've come to save. Those are the very people that I want to draw near to me in the face of rejection. And for us to have the mind of Jesus Christ, it means that by faith, we begin to reach out and love those who do not love us back, who do not treat us the way we think we should be treated, who do not care for us the way that we want to be cared for. That's having the mind of Christ. But if we want to do it this way, we need God to change our hearts. Because everything inside of us screams and fights against this kind of submission to God. This isn't something that we, we eagerly desire. Oh, I can't wait to love those who reject me. Can't wait to show compassion to those who hate me. Can't wait to bring near to those people who, who are disgusted with me and treat me unkindly and unfairly. We need God to change our hearts. We need God to do a work inside of us that would transform us to look more like Jesus Christ. And I think for me, personally, love for people grows in the fertile soil of prayer. It starts with prayer. Just like we approach God's Word to understand His Word with prayer, Guys, if we want to love people this way, it starts with prayer. I have in my office the privilege of praying for each one of you every week. As I stand before you this morning, I cannot tell you the the compassion and love that I have for you not because I just am somehow gifted with that, but because I'm on my knees before the Lord praying for you week in and week out. And I cannot tell you the way in which my heart has grown and expanded in love for people. I'm not a natural like extrovert. I just want to be around people all the time. That's not my natural disposition. But God has done a work and He continues to do a work 
but it comes from prayer. I was talking with someone this week, someone who doesn't go to our church. I didn't use any names. I was just communicating this person, just a, a situation in the church, and just asking for advice. And as I'm talking to this person about um, someone in the church, I'm fighting back tears. And this person's like, man, I can tell you're really affected by this because here we are sitting down at lunch with a room full of people we don't know, and you are fighting everything inside of you to, 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 to stop from bursting out and, and, and weeping for this the situation. I think, that's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. That's not a love that comes from just within me. It has come from, from years of praying for the situation. And I think if we want to be able to love the way Jesus loved and care for people the way Jesus cares for people, it comes from a work of God within us. And it is, it is wrought through the, the, the work of prayer and going to God for people. And I want to encourage you as Mercy Hill Church that we would be a place where the love of God is evident. Not because we just somehow worked it up in ourselves, but that somehow supernaturally there has been a work of the Spirit inside of us that as we go to God for one another, that He would give us His heart of love for each other. That is my desire for us. That is my desire for this church. I believe that is God's desire for us. That is Jesus Christ's heart for us that we would love one another this way. We've got those little Mercy Hill 5 cards. We pray for people. That's not just something that we just kind of go through. That is important. That is vital for us. That is one of the ways we just begin to put into practice what God has said. But the reality of it is, is this. At the end of verse 34, the result of stubborn refusal to come to Christ is this. Behold, your house is forsaken. Stubborn refusal to come to God means that there is a point, like we read last week, where the door is shut, where it's too late, where there's a, there's a, there's a forsakenness that we experience, there's a, a separation that we experience. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was overtaken by the Romans, completely destroyed. Temple was burned to the ground, and the city was left in ruins. And the same fate awaits all those who refuse to come to Christ. Jesus doesn't force us to come to Him. He, he makes an offer to us. He says, all who hear my words and come to me, I'll give you refuge in my wings. But if you refuse, and whether that's a country or a church or a family or an individual... One day the door is shut and only destruction awaits. That's the serious nature of this offer. It's not that we just either refuse or we remain neutral. It's that we refuse to come to Christ and the consequences are destruction. And although this is a warning to us, I want us to understand this is also a gracious invitation for us to come to Jesus Christ. This is a gracious invitation for us to come to Jesus Christ 
and ask Him for help to change our hearts. This is a gracious invitation for us to come to Jesus Christ and find shelter in His wings. Jesus concludes with this. He says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a promise here of that we would see Jesus. That we're not left on our own. That there is, a, there is an opportunity for us to see Jesus. We have an opportunity today to respond to this call. Respond to this invitation. That we would know and see Jesus Christ that He would transform and change our hearts, that we would approach Him with faith, that we would approach Jesus Christ and ask Him to change us, ask Him to have mercy upon us, ask Him to forgive us of our sins, to give us new life, and that we could find shelter in Him. As I conclude this morning, I want us just to pray together. And ask the Lord to change our hearts. Some of you have been serving Christ for years and decades. Some of you have been serving Christ for days or weeks. But we all fight the fight of faith. And we all need the Lord to change our hearts. And so we're, we, we come to the Lord together now and ask Him to change us. So Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith. Give us the strength to fight the fight of faith. Lord, whether we've been serving you for decades or for weeks, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would love, that we would have compassion and mercy on others like you have had compassion upon us. Like you have had mercy given to us. That the way that you have loved us. And Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for your gracious invitation. That we would come to you and find shelter in your wings. Lord, I pray, help us. Show us yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.